Over the past six weekends, we've been journeying through a, a study and consideration of some of the different traditions, denominations within the Christian church in the world. Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, Anglicanism, Protestantism, and others. And, and really, one of the intents of this series has been both in, to grow in appreciating and, and learning from other Christian traditions than our own. Because within Protestantism, especially, there's been an unhealthy tendency, I think, to view church history a bit like this. Where, where we see the early church, the first hundred years ago or so of the early church's ministry. But after that, it can tend to be viewed that for the next 1,400 years, the church just went adrift, was essentially lost. And, and it wasn't until the Reformation in 1517 that finally the church was restored and the church was regained. Now, I hope in this series we've gained an appreciation to say that probably isn't the most accurate way of viewing things. But rather, I would hope we would begin to see and appreciate maybe a perspective of church history that would look more like this. That really for the first millennium, the church was largely united uh, as it grew and expanded, even across the Roman Empire and beyond. And, and then in 1054, as we looked at that great schism that split between the Eastern and Western church that led to the branching off of the Roman Catholic Church on one hand and Eastern Orthodoxy on the other. And, and then around the 1500s, as the Reformation came, the branching off from the Roman Catholic Church of Protestantism. And again, it wasn't as clean as that. There are manifold expressions, many strands, uh, as we saw. And Kelly led us through that study. But kind of simplifying Protestantism again. And we, we also looked at that via media, that middle way of Anglicanism, as they tried to provide a, a middle path between Catholicism and the Protestant Reformation that was taking place. So, so that's kind of the perspective we have here. And, and, and understand this, even among us here at Southview, we come from a range of Christian backgrounds, and really delightfully so. So I thought as we conclude this series this week, I thought it might be interesting to kind of just do a quick survey here uh, in Mosaic as well. In the fireside area, you can join in as well. So could you do this? I'm going to just list off some of the Christian traditions, some of them. We can't cover all 41,000. Uh, we'd be here for a few days trying to do that. But as I list off one of the traditions, if you were either grew up in or were part of that tradition for some point in your journey, can you just raise your hand so we get a picture of where we've come from, all right? So it's, we'd start with this. How many of you came or were part of a Roman Catholic background for a while? How wonderful. And Eastern Orthodoxy? Many here from that? How about Anglicanism? Some as well from that. Okay, let's look at the Protestant traditions. How about from Lutheran background, maybe? Okay, Presbyterian. A Methodist. A United Church, really. It's, we refer to it more. Great, wonderful through that. And, and also, uh, how about a Pentecostal background? Okay, spread out through among us here. Mennonites. Now, if we were in Abbotsford, from personal experience, every one of us would raise our hands. I've seen it face to face. Uh, what are Baptists? Baptist traditions? Okay. Uh, uh, blending us from here as well. How about Christian Missionary Alliance? Isn't that interesting? Not, not that many of us. Or other Protestant denominations from some of you? 
I'd be part of this group, I, uh, as I shared with you before. And what's interesting, uh, among our pastoral staff, we come from a range of backgrounds. I, I grew up as Plymouth Brethren. That was my background. Uh, many of our pastors grew up in the Alliance. Uh, Sam Seifert grew up as a Lutheran, son of a Lutheran pastor. Uh, Brett Ashton, you might know, is he grew up in a Pentecostal church and later was part of the Anglican church. So Brett is one of those rare Anglicostals. <laughs> it explains a lot, doesn't it? So, so in this, we look at this and say, boy, even here, the, the breadth of our background and, and our experiences together, and one of the joys of that is that we each bring particular strengths to our community here at Southview from our journey together. So today, as we conclude this series, we're, we're going to conclude by looking at the tradition of which we now are a part, the Christian Missionary Alliance, or as it's often referred to, just simply as the Alliance which again, interestingly, is a tradition after 2,000 years of church history that finally got everything right. <laughs> I'm, you better laugh <laughs> after we've done this series, otherwise we totally miss the point. <laughs> so as we study the alliance, we're going to ask three questions again, similar to what we've asked of other traditions. One again, uh, we'll be asking together, where did the alliance come from? What were its roots? Uh, secondly, we'll be looking at the distinctive teachings of the alliance. What kind of sets it apart uh, in its teaching? And thirdly, we're going to ma make it a bit more personal in this and, and want to be asking, how is the alliance then expressed here at Southview? Uh, or even more specifically, what then does it mean to be a member of, of Southview? How is that expressed here? Okay. So I encourage you again to take notes. A sermon note sheet might be helpful, again, for later reference or just help you keep track or interested in what I'm saying uh, to that end. So let's look at the alliance together, and we'll start with that first question. Where did the Christian and missionary alliance come from? Now, now let's jump into the story around 1873. Now think of 1873, we, we, we've talked already about in the late 1800s, during that century particularly, that was a time, as we've seen in recent weeks, where there was a growing movement called the holiness movement, as we referred to, in, in Europe and in North America. And again, that holiness movement was largely flowing out of the teaching of the Anglican priest, John Wesley. Now that holiness movement, that really, you could kind of summarize it by saying there was a, a longing for more. Than, than just the religious status quo. That there was a longing for something deeper, more authentic, a life transformed in some way, personally, by God through his Holy Spirit. So we're in 1873. 1873, there's this young Presbyterian pastor in Canada. He's actually a relative of Lucy Laud Montgomery, uh, who wrote Anne of Green Gables. His name was Albert Benjamin Simpson. His friends just called him A.B. for short. Now, A.B. was raised as a strict, Calvinistic, Scottish Presbyterian. I, that, that was A.B., thank you. And he got his theology uh, from the University of Toronto, Knox College. He first pastored at his prestigious church in Hamilton, Ontario. And then in 1873, at the age of 30, Simpson left the perfection of Canada and headed south to the hinterlands of America. Where they are, hockey also rams, right? <laughs> All right. And let's do one more. How about that? Another. Okay, just one more in light of this morning's victory. We just got <laughs> There better be some applause for that. Well, good night. We just won the gold medal. 
And, uh, and you know what? If you just PBR'd that game to watch later, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and really, that's what you're going to remember from this morning, isn't it? <laughs> so Simpson headed down to America. He headed down to Lexington, Kentucky, to the largest church in Lexington. And in Kentucky, Simpson looked at his affluent congregation. And, and then he looked outside his church at the impoverished living largely outside of his church. And, and during that time, there, there was something formative that God did in Simpson's heart, two experiences particularly. For one, Simpson got this passion for preaching the good news of Christ to what he called the common man, just those who were largely outside the body of Christ, not the wealthy that were part of his congregation, but, but just the normal individuals of life. He had this passion to share Jesus. And secondly, while he was in Kentucky, he became exposed to this holiness teaching. In particular, he walked through then an experience that he defined as his experience of sanctification. Sanctification. Now, you just want to say that word with me? Sanctification. Now, it's a theological-sounding word, but what sanctification literally means, it means to be set apart. It, to be made holy is what it means. Like, think of the ancient Old Testament temple. They sanctified the candles and other things. They set them apart for a holy use. So sanctification refers to when we as followers of Jesus are set apart, begun to be made holy for Christ. Now, Simpson defines sanctification this way even more so. He defines sanctification as that experience that was both a crisis experience, it was often a crossroads moment, but it was also a progressive experience of, of being filled with the Spirit after you've received Jesus and increasingly being led by the Spirit so you are more dedicated to God and being empowered and transformed in your life. That makes sense? That was sanctification. So Simpson came to believe in Kentucky that the ministry of the Holy Spirit held the key to power and blessing in the lives of individual Christians. And with that new perspective, a new door of ministry opened. Because just a few years later, in 1880, he was called to be senior pastor of 13th Street Presbyterian Church in New York City. It's still standing today. That's what it looks like. Today it's no longer a church. Now it's a condo building which is a good sermon illustration for something, but I'm not sure what it says yet. But as you can just get by looking at that, picture that in the late 19th century. I mean, this was a prestigious church, and the congregation knew it. In fact, they were somewhat enamored with their beautiful new facility. That's what Simpson came into. Now, picture New York City in the late 19th century, all right? Not today, late, late 19th century. Think of the explosive growth, immigrants coming to the shores of New York from the nations, literally. And then mostly, those individuals, quite poor typically, in great need, being segregated into ethnic clusters in the city. Got that picture? So Simpson comes to the city with this heart to reach out with the message of Christ. And he devotes himself wholly, fervently, to reaching out to those lost nations right around him on his doorstep. And in this endeavor, he put himself so fully into it, he started to face a deep challenge because he came to be not just exhausted, but almost deteriorated physically and mentally. In fact, he came to a point where he realized, I can no longer minister if God in some way doesn't touch my life. 
my health. Now, up to that point, Simpson had gone through doctrinal training. He knew God had the ability to heal. He knew God did at times heal, even in the contemporary day. But at that point, still in his own life, it was kind of a theoretical belief. So he came to the crossroad where he said in his own words, I came to a point where I said, I felt I dare not hold any truth in God's word as mere theory or teach others what I had not personally proved. So with this great physical, mental need, battling depression at times, he went away to retreat and called out to God asking for God's healing touch on his life. His testimony was that at that retreat, God touched him. He healed him. And he returned to his ministry with a double-fold ability to move out with energy and endurance. And in fact, probably he endured it or <laughs> devoted himself at times too deeply in the ministry at the detriment of his own family life. But Simpson was there in New York. He saw the nations coming to his city, and with that he saw this incredible opportunity for his wealthy, affluent, influential congregation to reach out to the nations on the doorstep. But it's intriguing, once again, Simpson's congregation didn't share his passion. In fact, what started to happen was they started to get irritated at Simpson bringing these ethnic clusters into their church because when the immigrants came into their church, you know what happened? The, the carpet, the pews, they got, they got soiled. So just pause there. Think about Walden. Let, let's never let that happen there, all right? By God's grace. Now at 13th Street Presbyterian, the final straw for the congregation came when Simpson wanted to welcome into membership in the church a hundred new converts to Christ that he had led to Jesus in his street ministry, who were from the poor Italian quarter. And, and, and so the church's membership committee refused the membership of these hundred new converts to Jesus. Can you imagine? Simpson wrote this later. What the church wanted was a conventional parish for respectable Christians. What their young pastor wanted was a multitude of publicans and sinners. So after two years of battling his own congregation, Simpson had enough. He left the church to start, really, what you could call a church for the unchurched in New York City. And, and they initially met in a community center, that kind of simple place. They started integrating music that was more contemporary to their own day. But it really wasn't the facility or the form of music that was the focus. In, in fact, in 1890, Simpson described the vision, the, the hunger, the drive that God had put on his heart for this local assembly, for this different kind of church. And, and listen to what Simpson wrote. And, and see, see if his words are any less needed today. This is what he wrote. God is showing us a plan for a Christian church that is much more than an association of congenial friends to listen once a week to an intellectual discord and musical entertainment and carry on by proxy a mechanism of Christian work. But rather, God has called us to be a church that can be at once the mother and home of every form of help and blessing which Jesus came to give to lost and suffering people. 
the birthplace, the home of souls, the fountain of healing and cleansing, the sheltering home for the orphan and distressed, the school for the culture and training of God's children, the armory where they are equipped for the battle of the Lord and the army which fights those battles in his name. Such a center of population in the sad and sinful world is our calling. Could we not nail that on the doorpost of Walden? So in their first gathering of this motley crew, they read from the prophet Zechariah. And these are the words that Simpson read to that burgeoning little congregation. Zechariah verse four, chapter 4, verse 6. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And so Simpson and this group along with him moved out in faith, seeking passionately to reach the lost around them. And in this evangelistic, this kingdom effort, what started to happen was that other church pastors, other church leaders, other churches really, from a range of denominations, Presbyterian, Methodist, Lutheran, Reformed, Baptist, started partnering together with Simpson and his church to, to reach the lost around them. Now, it's intriguing that their hunger of this collective gathering wasn't just to reach the lost in their neighborhoods of their own city, but they had to start to have a heart to go beyond their own shorelines to reach the nations together with the good news of Jesus. So in this kind of informal gathering, Simpson wasn't intending this to be a denomination in any sense. But it just was this growing collection of churches in the States and in Canada trying to lie together to, to reach those who were lost without Christ. So at first they just started calling themselves the Christian Alliance. A bit later on they called them the Evangelical Missionary Alliance. Across traditional lines, just focusing on the good news of Jesus. And it was in 1897 that as this group continued to grow, and the pastors from other churches even said, we need to formalize this agreement, that they begin to call themselves the Christian and Missionary Alliance. Together seeking to reach the nations for Christ. And, and now today, now today there are about 20,000 Alliance churches in the world, in over 80 countries, uh, totaling about 5 million people gathering on a weekend in Alliance churches around the world. So friends, that's where we came from. And, and I, I want you to hear, in fact, I want you to reflect on this history a bit. In part so we realize that's part of our ecclesiastical heritage. That, that that's part of our DNA in the Alliance, in Southview. This, this driving passion to lead as many as possible to passionately follow Christ. So, so let me be clear on this, in, in fact. If, if you are here today and if, if you are trying to figure out if, if there is a God or, or who Jesus is or if Jesus is more than just a good moral teacher, I mean, if you're here and you have uncertainties, questions about all this, I just want you to know that is exactly why we're here. And we are so thankful you are here with us. But let me also be clear. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you've put your faith in him, and you're just looking for a conventional church where really you can attend just on a weekend and listen to some good music, maybe hear a message, and then go on in daily life just detached from Christ and the kingdom of God, you really need to know you're in the wrong church. We are at cross purposes, friends. 
We're, we're seeking different things. And I'll tell you this as well. I will increasingly annoy you, even more than I do now. And, and I say that not a judgment or harshness, but just so that together we would have clarity, right? As to what we are called to be about, because it's not just our historical heritage that calls us to this. It is Christ himself, and through his word we're called to be this. That's our heritage. So that leads us to a second question, I think. What then would we say are the distinctive teachings of the alliance together? And again, you can look at Simpson, and, and Simpson kind of interestingly summarized the message of Scripture and, and the alliance teaching, and it still would be summarized as the fourfold gospel. Have you heard it put that way? Now, again, this fourfold gospel, it wasn't unique to Simpson in his time by any means, and certainly it's not unique today. But that fourfold gospel, it simply focused on the, the fourfold ministry of Jesus Christ, as Scripture describes it. And what would those, that fourfold ministry be? It would be this to begin with. Firstly, it's that Christ is our Savior. Christ our Savior. Just say it with me, would you? Christ our Savior. And, and so Simpson proclaimed, as we would still proclaim from Scripture, that Jesus is a universal Savior. In fact, in John chapter 4, 11, rather, in John chapter 11, verse 25, we read this. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, Though he die, yet shall he live. This is a universal invitation Jesus brings. But Jesus is also an exclusive Savior, as Scripture tells us. In fact, in the book of Acts, one of the places it puts it this way, fairly abruptly, is this. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Salvation, in fact, read this with me, will you? Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. So from Scripture, therefore, we would teach, in, in contrast to what contemporary culture often would say, that there are not multiple paths to God. There, there is one pathway to God. And according to Scripture, his name is Jesus. Jesus is a universal Savior, but he's an exclusive Savior. And, that, and it's the first ministry declared in this fourfold gospel. But beyond being Savior... There's a second dimension to Jesus' ministry, and that's that Christ is our sanctifier. Christ our sanctifier. Say that phrase. Christ our sanctifier. Now, we touched on this in part last week as we looked at, the, at Pentecostalism, but just to remind us, these words of Jesus, again in the book of Acts, in Acts 1 verse 8, Jesus said this. Jesus said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will receive power. You know, one of the realities even today is that there are many individuals who have turned in faith to Jesus, who are followers of Christ, who, uh, who understand God's promise of salvation through Jesus, but they don't experience any kind of ongoing sanctifying work of Jesus Christ in their lives through the power of his spirit. And, and so the result of that can be, even though they have the spirit of God within them, there can be a lack of joy, a lack of power, a lack of transformation in their lives. And, and that's why, even looking back at A.B. Simpson, that's why Simpson, really, he longed for all that God had for him through his Holy Spirit. In fact, Simpson, during that time, as Pentecostalism was about to burgeon in growth, 
Simpson prayed for the gift of tongues even. He said, I, I don't want to be without any gift God would want to give me. So he sought the gift of tongues in his own life for many years and prayed for it. He, he never received the gift, so his principle became, with, in regarding tongues, seek not, forbid not. That was his principle of understanding. But not only did Simpson long for that spiritual gift, but, but beyond that, he longed for his body to know the work of the Spirit within it. In fact, one historian says that really when you look at Azusa Street, as we did last weekend, that, that kind of origin of Pentecostalism, that for Simpson, he longed to see in his own church in New York what took place in Azusa Street. He longed to see the Spirit expressed in whatever form, in whatever ways, biblically would be right and true and of God. And so Simpson prayed. He longed for the work of the Spirit in his life. And so that, as a result, it's intriguing that many of the first churches to, to really adopt the new Pentecostal teaching that flowed out of Azusa Street were alliance churches, as you look at the history. You know, I, I, I've shared with you already that I grew up in Plymouth Brethren tradition, for which I am deeply thankful but in, in my own journey and, and reflection, scripture in my life just came to the point of just increasing belief in and, and, and longing for a, a deeper work of the Spirit in my life. And, and really, maybe to put it in light of the series we're going through, it, it's in ways as though I was looking kind of a, for a via media, a middle way between Plymouth Brethren and Pentecostalism, as weird a blend as that might be. <laughs> But I, I, I really felt like, in my own studies, I, I felt like I heard the voice of that middle way, particularly in a couple of writings of pastors from Alliance churches. Uh, one was A.B. Simpson, the other was A.W. Tozer. And felt like I, I heard in them this consistent declaration that Jesus Christ, wonderfully, he is our Savior, but he's not just our Savior. He's also our transforming sanctifier through his Holy Spirit. He, he's our savior. He's our sanctifier. And thirdly, in this fourfold gospel, it, it declares that Christ is our healer. Say that phrase, will you? Christ, our healer. You know, listen what the gospel of Matthew writes in, in Matthew chapter 4. In fact, it's echoed in chapter 9, verse 35 as well. But in Matthew 4, verse 23, this is what we read about Jesus' ministry. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and, again, read this with me, will you? Healing every disease and sickness among the people. You know, it's interesting when you read through the Gospels that you see what a significant portion of Jesus' time in ministry was spent doing was, was spending time dedicated to healing the sick. And, and he healed all kinds of people. He healed the blind, the paralyzed, the, the lame. He healed lepers. He healed the deaf. He healed those with fevers, those with chronic illnesses. And in fact, there's no record in the Gospels of Jesus turning anyone away who came to him for healing. Nor do we find that any disease was too difficult for Jesus to heal. It kind of makes sense because he raised somebody from the dead. So disease, not that big a deal to Jesus. And, and so therefore, in the alliance... Based on scripture, yet as in many other Christian traditions, we believe that healings from a God still occur today. We believe we're to call out to God. Now, these healings may not come in the way we desire, but we're invited to call out to Jesus for his healing. To this God who's Jehovah Rapha, he is a God who heals still today. 
Because Jesus Christ is. He's our Savior. He's our sanctifier. He is our healer. And delightfully, fourthly, uh, Christ is our coming king. Just say that phrase. Christ, our coming king. This is how it's put in the Gospel of John. In, in, in John 14, John 14, from Jesus' mouth, we read these words. John 14, 3. Jesus said, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back. And I'll take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. So, so friends, as followers of Jesus, we, we are called to, to live out the great commission that Jesus gave in Matthew 28, of reaching the nations, making disciples of all. We are called to live out that commission until his magnificent return, which will come one day. Can you imagine? And what will that look like? But there's a day that will come when we'll again see face-to-face our, our coming king. Four themes that have marked the alliance, really, in its teaching. This fourfold gospel. And, and really, it's expressed in the alliance logo, if you've ever seen this. Each of those symbols representing one dimension of Christ our Savior, Sanctifier, Healer, and Coming King. Now, as you hear those four, do you get an idea of the central focus of alliance teaching? It's one name. <laughs> it's Jesus. <laughs> he, he's the focus of, of this teaching. So therefore, we take this teaching, we take our history, our heritage, and say then, what about us, thirdly? For us here at Southview, what does it mean for us to be Alliance? And more specifically, what does it mean then to be a member of Southview as part of this Alliance history and tradition? And really, to put it in these ways, we've started to put it this way, that there are really three guiding images that describe what we believe being a member of Southview is about. Three images or pictures represented in this triangle together. And again, you can have this unfolded even more in a membership class. But we want these three images to stick with us, to say if we're part of Southview, this is what we want to mark us. So we'd say firstly this, that for one, members of Southview, we're, we're called to be storytellers. Storytellers. Just say that phrase, will you? Storytellers. Meaning what? <laughs> Meaning... That, that we are a people who, who know this greater story of Scripture. You know, we, we talk about the flow of the story of Scripture from four elements, from creation to fall, from redemption in Christ, and then restoration, new creation. So we are ones who understand this great story of Scripture, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And, and we are therefore to understand how both the Alliance story and the Southview story, and even more so, how your personal story fits within this greater story of Scripture. You are part of the story of creation, fall, redemption in Christ, and ultimately restoration, new creation in Christ. And, and so as followers of Jesus, we believe we're to be storytellers in this way, who don't just know this story, but we share it with those around us. And we can speak to others in whatever phrase we would to say, this is how my story fits within the story of Scripture. We are called to be storytellers. A second image we want to mark us as members of Southview is this, that we want to be symbol bearers. Just say it with me, would you? Symbol bearers. Again, meaning what? <laughs> meaning that, that we want to be a people who, who carry, who uphold, who share the reality behind Southview's symbol that we use. And again, the symbol 
Again, to remind us that the centrality of Christ, his cross, his preeminence, as it is within the alliance and with other traditions within the body of Christ. And around that circle that we're to walk in community together and the heart of this life with Jesus, we believe, four of the elements, the W speaking of the word of God, that's to be integrated in our lives. The P speaking the invitation to pray, to be in constant communion with God. The S speaking of the spirit of God, this light that we have to walk by the spirit to live this life. And the first fruit being that L, the love of Christ, which leads us then in these arrows to go in every direction with good news of Jesus. So so as followers of Jesus here in Southview, we believe we want to be storytellers, but secondly, we want to be symbol bearers, not just being able to draw that on a napkin, that image, but rather to live this life out with Jesus. Storytellers, symbol bearers, and thirdly, simply this. We want us to be life-on-life practitioners. Can you say that with me? Life-on-life practitioners. Again, meaning simply this, as we speak of what it means to live this out. Meaning that we want to be a people who are actively engaged in pursuing what we refer to as the five core practices that flow out of Southview symbol. And again, that live out those core practices, not in Lone Ranger Christianity, but in life-on-life relationships, essentially. And again, reminding ourselves, why do the five core practices that, again, the pictures out here in the Evergreen Lobby remind us of? What are those five core practices? One, again, is community. That we're called to walk together, share life together, encourage one another in the body of Christ. In no way is a follower of Jesus ever called to live this life on their own. Secondly, the Word of God. We're to integrate by memorizing the Word of God, sharing it, studying it, walking it together, studying and journeying together in life. This Word of God. Thirdly, again, prayer being the third practice of becoming increasingly in a pattern of of sharing our heart with God, whether it be words of praise, of thanksgiving, of concern, of, of questions God, listening to God is the promptings of His Spirit in our life. The fourth core practice, again, being serving. Meaning by the power of the Spirit, using the talents, the passions, the gifts God has given us by His Holy Spirit to express His kingdom in in tangible ways to those around us. And then lastly, after community, word, prayer, serving, is is loving others. And and that simply being then, to, to reach out to others in word and in action with this good news of Jesus. And all of that, friends, we believe is to be on in relationship. That, that if we are not walking life on life with some other followers of Jesus closely, man, we're missing the mark of what God has for us. So how is this expressed here? For one, I'd invite you to be storytellers. Secondly, to be symbol bearers. And, and thirdly, we as members, we want to be life on life practitioners. Now clearly, you don't have to be a member at Southview to follow those three patterns. But really, for those who say, I want to be a member at Southview, you're really saying, I want this to be the community of faith as long as God has us here. I want this to be the place at Southview where I will serve, where I will identify with, where will this be the community that I walk in, and I want to be accountable to others in my walk with Christ. I want to be accountable. And that's how it comes to us. You know, I think I've shared a bit with you before my own journey to the Christian Missionary Alliance. It was an intriguing journey looking back on it. Again, it was when I was in my 30s that after 
this is after having many years of graduate theological study. I'd, I'd turned in faith to Jesus many years previous. I'd, I'd, I really hadn't been in Alliance Church before. But I'd, I'd, at that point, I'd read a lot from A.B. Simpson, from A.W. Tozer, and really felt formed by their work. And, and really, again, I heard in their writings this, this longing for all that God had by his spirit in our lives as we follow Jesus. And I'd say this, at that point, it, it was like I had this longing, this hunger for, for knowing more of Christ. Do you know what I mean? In, in fact, those words of Paul in Philippians 3, that, I felt like that's, that was kind of my life verse in that moment. Where, where Paul said those words, already as a follower of Jesus, he still said, I want to know Christ. And that word know in the Greek, not being intellectual knowledge, it being experiential, relational knowledge. I want to know Christ. Yes, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing his suffering, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. I, I want to know Christ. And, and I felt like that was my longing. That was my hunger. That was really my, the prayer of my heart at that time. And so on one weekend, I went to a smaller Alliance church, never having been to Alliance church before, and just with this kind of hunger within me. The pastor, there was an elderly pastor, actually it was just not long from his own retirement. And he got up before his sermon and said this as he looked down upon this small congregation as we sat there in these pews. And then he said, my goal today, because I have no idea why you're here, my goal today is not ultimately to give you theology or to give you doctrine or give you better skills for living. Those are all good things, he said. But my desire today, I just want to give you Jesus. And, and I don't know if this makes sense, but I honestly don't think there have been words of a sermon I've ever heard that it resonated more with my heart. That just put that simply, I just felt... Yes, that's what I want. I want Jesus. And I'll tell you this, the deep prayer of my heart, friends, if you're part of this outpost of the kingdom of God, is that from me, from us, you would be led to, that you would know Christ. Because it doesn't matter from which church tradition you have come or which you even now might be a part if it's other than the alliance. What we as the body of Christ and all its manifold expressions are called to uphold is simply this. We are called to bring to our world and to one another him. We would see Jesus. So, so where do we go from here? Again, we're an outpost of the kingdom of God in this broad, beautiful diversity of the body of Christ. And again, it doesn't mean we all agree on things. Clearly, we have significant differences from one another on some key elements of teaching. But in all this, in all its diversity as we join together, we are united by one thing. It's together our proclamation of and our crying out to Christ. So, so doesn't it seem fitting that on this weekend when we conclude this series, having thought of, reflected on the diversity in the body of Christ, that we conclude by coming to the table that more than anything declares the unity we have in Jesus? As literally across the centuries, 
and across the nations, even today, across the lines of Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, Anglicanism, Protestantism, whatever it be, across the world, followers of Jesus now are joining together today around this meal. And we join with them to proclaim our desire to know him and glorify him. Amen? So let's come to this table and we'll pass the bread, wait till we've all received it, and then take it together. We're going to do likewise with the cup. And if you are here today, if you're at Mosaic, and if, if really, if you're not desiring to follow Jesus yet, for one, we are so thankful you're here. There is no embarrassment at all in passing these elements by at all. We're just thankful you're part of us. But for those of you, if your heart is for Jesus, and maybe it's for the first time today, you'd say, I want to express my desire to follow Jesus by receiving this meal. Oh, I invite you to come. And, and we'll eat this bread together and drink this cup in unity as a body of Christ. Amen. Amen. Let me pray, and then we'll receive. So, Father, we come now to this meal thanking that this is not just a human endeavor, but not, that it's not just limited to remembering events from 2,000 years ago, but in some mystical way, by your grace and through the Spirit of Jesus, you are here with us, and you are seeking to feed us through him as we receive this bread and cup. So we come today hungry for him, and we receive this in his incredible name. Amen.